0: If you want to take your Bible and turn to the book of Hebrews for our ongoing study this morning. For quite a while now, we have been in the book of Hebrews, and um, we're actually up to the end of chapter uh, 6. And last week, uh, we began a just a short little series of on uh, what you can see in your bulletins titled, The Images of Christ and His Work in the Book of Hebrews. We, we're we coming to the end of uh, chapter 6, and I just thought before we launched into chapter 7 and the whole discussion of Jesus as a, a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, which is a, you know a big subject and a lot there to unpack, I, I just thought, well, let's go back to chapter 6. Is there anything in there just that we might have missed or might want to review before launching into chapter 7 and at the end of chapter 6 verse 20 there is this mention that Jesus entered the sanctuary on our behalf as a forerunner and remember last week that kind of launched us into this whole area of what are the titles or the images that the writer of Hebrews uses to describe who Jesus is and also what his work is I mean it's one thing to say that Jesus is a uh, God, Jesus is the son of God, he's the king of kings and lord of lords, and he died. Uh, but to help these readers and to help us understand all what that means, he, he brings in a number of different pictures, word pictures, titles, images, metaphors, whatever word you want to use, um, to the, 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 the paint us a picture of, of what Jesus is doing um, they are in your bulletin, If again, this week, if you want to follow along. I know it's kind of small font there, so you might need to pull your glasses out. But inside your bulletin there, there's um, the titles. And as you can see, there's 13 of them that I counted. I, I've left out God, Son of God, Son, Lord, because those aren't necessarily unique to Hebrews. Uh, I only picked on those that were unique to Hebrews. And of those 13, you can see that I I cataloged and categorized them into three categories. There's three categories. There's one that um, you can say is Jesus bringing salvation from God to man. Uh, The second category is Jesus bringing reconciliation from man to God. And then there's there's two other titles that fit both. And so there's the third category there. Now, last week, if you were here, we just began uh, looking at all of these, and we just looked at the first category. Uh, And so this week we'll come back and uh, pick up where we left off. Now, as I said before, these are metaphors. Uh, All those words there are are metaphors, and they give us a picture, uh, again, of who Jesus is and what he has done, particularly in his two works. When we talk about his works, there's a lot that he has has done, but if we were to generalize it, uh, we can talk about his humiliation, him coming down, and then his exaltation, him going up. Uh, So the humiliation is the first category. The exaltation is the second category. Uh, All of this, by the way, uh, brings up a a subject that I have a real interest in, and it's what theologians call divine accommodation. Divine accommodation. Anybody heard of that before? You're a student. Okay, you haven't gotten there yet. Divine accommodation. I know Peter has. Divine accommodation. Divine accommodation is the idea that um, God speaks our language. Divine, coming down to us, accommodation, and helping us understand exactly, one, who he is and what he's done. Um, There's an article in Table Talk not long ago who uh, the author there defined divine accommodation. So let, let me just read what he says, and that helps understand why we're going through this and what the author is doing. He says, Christians have historically endorsed the doctrine of divine accommodation. This doctrine holds that since God is transcendent, he cannot communicate to us as equals in the language of pure, unfiltered, heavenly disclose, dis- discourse. Rather, He is the triune creator, whereas we are mere creatures. So when God talks to us, he stoops to our level. For instance, God's word came to us in Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic, and now it is translated in countless other human languages. In fact, all of scripture is accommodated to us. As John Calvin put it, who even of slight intelligence does not understand that as nurses commonly do with infants, God is wont in a measure to lisp in speaking to us. Thus, such forms of speaking do not so much express clearly what God is like as accommodate the knowledge of him to our slight capacity, end quote. So when we're looking at all these metaphors, when we're looking at these images, this is God accommodating to us in in our language so we get an idea of who Jesus is and what he's done. That's what the intent of the writer of Hebrews was doing when he wrote this. Now, as I said, I have a real interest in this because part of my Ph.D. thesis involves the divine accommodation. As some of you know, I'm looking at the the subject of divine revelation in the Old Testament. And as you look at divine revelation, you notice that God uh, speaks at various times in various ways, as the writer of Hebrews says. And so there's a diversity of that. He speaks sometimes in a theophany, in a vision, sometimes in a dream. and, And he speaks, you know... Uh, not at the the point in time when the people or the king or the prophet wanted. He just speaks when he wants to speak. So the point is there's a diversity, and my question is, is there any unity? And so I'm bringing this this doctrine of divine accommodation into it because you understand that God is king. That's a metaphor, that God is king. The prophets are his messengers. and, And really the structure of biblical revelation is what I call administrative correspondence. So again, if you were a king in the ancient world, and you wanted to administrate your kingdom, didn't have TVs, you didn't have internet, what did you do? You would give a letter to a messenger, and that messenger would go out to the four corners of your empire, he would walk into town, he would open up and say what? Thus saith the king. Isn't that what the prophets did? So it's that metaphor of administration that I'm taking to the thesis. Anyway, I had to get that in there somewhere. Just so you, a, as an illustration of what a divine accommodation is. So, look, let's come back to Hebrews and, and look at that little list there. Uh, and we'll see how far we get this morning. Last week we only got through Category 1, and we probably won't get through a few in Category 2. But let me just read without little, with little comment those that are in category one. Now, remember category one are those titles and images that describe Jesus bringing salvation from God to man. So in 2.11, let me just read these for you. In chapter 2, verse 11, Jesus is described as the one who sanctifies. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. So he's the sanctifier. Jesus, by his blood, sanctifies his people. Just like in the Old Testament, the priest sanctified the people by the blood. So that's who he is. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Without righteousness, no one will get to heaven. So we need somebody that sanctifies us, and that's Jesus. Then in chapter 3, verse 1, he's referred to as the apostle. Now, there are apostles in the, Old, in the New Testament. They had 12 but Jesus was the Apostle, the sent, that's what Apostle means, the sent one. His mission was to come. Remember how many times in the book of John, I have come to do the will of my Father. I have come to speak the words of my Father. I have come to seek and save the I have come. You just pull up all those words, in, especially in the book of John. I have come. I have been sent. Jesus came with a mission, thus he is the Apostle. Then in verse 3 of chapter 3, he's known as the builder of a house. And that goes back to Zechariah 6, where the Messiah was going to come and build a house or a temple for the Lord. And it's a spiritual temple. It's it's, it's us. We are the house of God. Remember how Paul puts that in Hebrews 3.3, For Jesus is considered worthy of more glory than Moses, um, uh, just as the builder has even more honor than the house. Then in chapter 5, verse 9, he's referred to as the source of eternal salvation. Hebrews 5, 9 says, After he was perfected, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And that's pretty much self-explanatory. Do you want eternal salvation? It's a rhetorical question. Um, Because the uh, the, the only alternative is eternal death, right? Right. We're all immortal, we all live forever, and we live in one of two places. We live with God in heaven or we live in hell under his wrath forever and ever. So if you want eternal salvation, God has only given us one name under heaven by which we may be saved, and that's Jesus Christ. Thus he is what? The source of eternal salvation. Now along that, just moving along in chapter 7, verse 22, he's called the guarantee a couple of you said that was your favorite of the of the bunch last week uh, and I understand that he's the guarantee Hebrews 7:22 said because of this oath Jesus has also become the guarantee of a better covenant a guarantee in the sense that yes God made a promise yes God swore on that promise but Jesus has come along and guaranteed it all like God needed somebody to guarantee it but he did nevertheless we are weak we are frail we are fickle, we doubt a lot, we, um, our faith is not strong. So when the writer of Hebrews comes and says, look, has God promised? Yes. Has God sworn? Yes. Is that enough? Yes. But because of your fickleness, because of your wavering, you need to know that Jesus is a guarantee to all of it. And that's going to strengthen your faith, right? That's going to help you press on. And that was the point. By the way, that's the point of all these metaphors. All these metaphors is not just the let's take a class on Christology. There's application to this. There's practical uh, aspect to this. This is to help you move forward. Remember, these are, these are Jewish Christians who are uh, under persecution, under pressure from their family. They're thinking about going to Judaism. Uh, why would you go back to Judaism? There's nothing there. Your Messiah has arrived. Your king has arrived. You need to move forward. So let me help you in moving forward by describing who he is and what he's done. Right? Now, as you can see, the next one in, in chapter 8, verse 2, is that he is a minister. He's a minister. Hebrews 8, 1, 2 says, now the main point of what is being said is this. We have this kind of high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Here it is. A ministry of the sanctuary and the true tabernacle that was set upon, set up rather, by the Lord and not man. Now, there were tabernacles. There were there was a temple in the Old Testament. Before all that, there was a garden in Genesis 3. All of that is uh, a sanctuary. A sanctuary is a place where God and man dwelt uh, and, and where God and man commune with each other and man worshipped God. But, of course, sin came and man had, was thrown out of the garden. And so it's not till a little bit later that you have a tabernacle and a little bit later than a, and a temple and inside the tabernacle and inside the temple, you have what? You have ministers. You have those who serve and watch over the tabernacle and temple. Jesus is, in that whole typology, is the great high priest who, who doesn't minister in an earthly tabernacle or an earthly temple, but in the heavenly tabernacle and the heavenly temple. And that's what we need. He's a minister there. And then lastly, before we move into category two, he is, chapter 13, verse 20 says, the great shepherd of the sheep. There are a lot of shepherds. Every king was known as a shepherd. Jesus himself called himself the good shepherd. And the writer of Hebrews says, no, 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 he's not just a good shepherd. He's a great shepherd. God sent the shepherd and the shepherd gathers the sheep. He even lays his life down for the sheep. So he's the great shepherd of the sheep. So that's category one. Jesus brings salvation from God to humanity. You could say it another way, but that's how I put it. That then brings us into the second category. So if you're following along in your your outline, this category, as I said, are titles or images that describe Jesus bringing reconciliation from man to God. And so in one sense, this is him and his exaltation. The first, as you can see, and you can follow along now in your Bible if you go back to chapter 1, verse 2, is that he is an heir. An heir, not a heir. An heir, H-E-I-R. Notice in Hebrews 1, 2. This is how he launches the whole book. In these last days, and where are the last days? Are we in the last days? Yes, we're in the last days. Last days launched with the, the resurrection of Christ, basically. Anywhere from the resurrection to the ascension to him sitting, we're in the last days. Some some want to get a little bit specific when, but I'll just put it at the resurrection. Somewhere after the resurrection, we are now in the last days. And he says, in these last days, he, that's God, has spoken to us. Remember, he spoke to the prophets, to the fathers. Remember what verse 1 said. But now, in these last days, he has, God has spoken to us through his Son, Don't need to put a footnote on that. We all know who that is. And then he says, God promised everything to the son as an inheritance. Or as the the, the Christian standard Bible says, God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. And again, the gist is, God promised everything to the Son as an inheritance. That's what it means when he says God has appointed him the heir of all things. Now, there's a, a few things to take away from this. First of all, God has appointed him. I love that. If you just stop there. God has appointed him. That's significant. But then notice, God has appointed him heir of all things. And what does that mean? Now, he's writing to Jewish Christians. And remember, every time we read a book, we need to know who the author is, who the readers are, what the context is. And and, and as we've been working our way through the book of Hebrews, we we realize that much of what the writer of Hebrews says has an Old Testament background. And remember, how many times have we gone back to the Old Testament to see, ah, that's probably why he said what he said. And and this is no different. Again, everything that's in Hebrews and even right here has an Old Testament background background. Again, they're Jewish Christians, they need hope, they need their faith strengthened, which begs the question, what have they been hoping for? If you were a a, a Jew living in the first century, or any century for that matter, what have you been hoping for? What promises have you been waiting for? Uh, More importantly, where are those promises found? Well, They are the people of the book, and the book is the Old Testament. So you ask the question, well, who is Jesus? I mean, this is what he's getting at, right? Who who is Jesus? Well, in this one verse, he's the son, right? But he's also the heir. Uh, And by the way, he's also the creator. You you see that at the end of the verse as well, through whom he created everything. But the question is, where is he getting all this? The, The heir of who and the heir of what promises? Well, let's break this down a bit. The, the word "heir" comes from two words, kleros, which means a lot, and namas, which normally is translated law, but in this case means something parceled out or a lot. So you've got a lot that's, you know, you've got a, a lot, then it's divided out. Literally, it means a share by lot. You need to know that the background to this is, Uh, originally it referred to a situation in which lots were drawn to divide property or select a winner with the one who drew the lot being the heir. So it was kind of a a lottery back then in, in its original etymology. But later on, the word then came to be used for dividing the property that a father left to his children when he died, hence an inheritance and the person who received it an heir. Now, it's divine accommodation, because obviously God didn't die, right? So, this is an image, a metaphor. God has only one son, and that means he has only one heir. Lo- now, Logically then, listen, whatever God has, whatever God owns, is now whose? His sons. That's what it means. He appointed him the heir. Jesus is the heir of it Now, by the way, heir not only means the receiving of whatever the father gives him by way of an inheritance, but it also, in this case, conveys the ideas of dominion and authority. God is king. And as the king of kings and the Lord of lords and giving him his son an inheritance, not only gives him everything that God has, but also gives him that royal inheritance. So Christ then becomes the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Now, throughout the book of Hebrews, Jesus is better than, better than, better than, better than. Right? In chapter 1, who is he better than? He's better than the angels. And then ultimately, he then slides into the better than the prophets. So keep that in mind. It, 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 he's making a case that Jesus is better than the angels. For In the intertestamental period, they worshipped angels. The Jews elevated angels. And some would even say that Christ was an angel. And, of course, he's got to make this whole case that Jesus is not an angel. He didn't take the nature of an angel. He took the nature of man because he came to help man. Remember that. He says that a little bit later. But when he launches out right at the beginning and says jesus is the heir god appointed him is the heir what is he emphasizing he's emphasizing the superiority of the son to who well you could say to everybody but in the context here to who to the angels and even to the prophets that he'll mention a bit later now this word appointed just just so you understand you could translate it in a number of different ways um the, the Some translations put, he put or placed or made or set, he fixed, he established. It all gets to the same point. It, it was God behind all this. God appointed him heir of all things. Not just some things, all things. And again, the all things has an Old Testament background. When he says there that the son is the heir of all things, it really is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. Do you want to see that? I I think this will help. Turn in your Bible, just to wake you up a bit. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel 7. Let, Let me just show you a number of different verses that you can just link to this verse. In 2 Samuel 7, some of you are familiar with this. 2 Samuel 7 is what we would refer to as where the Davidic promise, the Davidic covenant arises. Remember the context here, just real quickly, where David looks out his window and says, oh, hey, I'm in a temple, and, and God over there is in a tabernacle, and that's not fair. God should be in a temple. Let me build a temple for him. And so he asked the prophet Nathan, and Nathan says, go for it. And that night, God comes to Nathan in a vision and basically says, hey, before you, before you answer for me, how about uh, ref- talk to me first? Um, and says, no, David's not going to be the guy. He's a man of blood. His son will be the guy, but I'm going to give David something even more special. I mean, it's great building a temple for God, but he is going to give him a, a kingdom that will last forever, a throne that will last forever. And so when, just for the sake of time, I won't read you all, but when he, Nathan comes back and delivers that out to David, David gets it. You know why he gets it? Because when you come down to verse 11, The Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house for you. When your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, this is Nathan to David, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with a rod of men and blows from mortals. But my faithful love will never leave him as it did when I removed it from Saul. Whom I removed from before you, your house and kingdom will endure before me forever and ever. Your throne will be established forever and ever. What is what is he talking about here? Now, for those of you that are cluey and and, and know the the storyline of the Bible, this goes all the way really back to Genesis 315. What's in Genesis three fifteen? Genesis three fifteen is the promise of a of a savior. It's the promise of a Messiah that was going to come. And Moses, who writes Genesis from that point on, in his in, in the narratives, is following a particular family. The, the family line, as I, as I like to call it, the family line of the Messiah, and, and you can see it. It goes from from uh, Adam and I think it was going to go to Abel, but Abel gets killed by Cain, and then it goes to Seth, and you just follow it along to Noah. Noah had three sons. It's not Jepheth, it's not Ham, but it's Shem. And from Shem, you just follow the genealogy. It ends up at Abraham, and Abraham to Isaac, Isaac to Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. Well, which of the sons is it going to then pass on to? Is it going to be Judah? Is it going to be Simeon? Is he going to be Levi? No, these are the fourth son. It goes to who? Or or not... um, it does go to it goes to Judah rather, Simeon, Levi, Reuben, fourth son, Judah. And, and you see that in Genesis 49. A lot of people in the tribe of Judah. Which which person through the tribe of Judah is it going to come to? Well, the answer is right here. It's going to come through David, and David gets that. David understands this is the promise of the Messiah. The, 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 the sages actually come through my loins. In fact, you, you, you see that he gets it because down in verse 18, he says, then King David went in, sat in the Lord's presence and said, what? Who am I, Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? What have you done so far was a little thing to you. Lord God, for you have also spoken to your servant's house in the distant future. And then I, I love this. And this is Torah Ha'adam. This is a revelation for mankind. This is the teaching of Adam. This goes back to Adam. What more can David say to you? You know your servant, Lord God, because of your word, and according to your will, you have revealed all these great things to your servant. David, as I said, gets it. He understands now that he is going to be the recipient in his family line of the Messiah. That's why when you get to the New Testament, what does Luke do? What does Matthew do? It begins. They begin with what? A genealogy that go all the way back to Adam, but through David. Jesus is the promised one. He's the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. As we'll come back around, he's the heir. Now, turn to Psalm 2. Psalm 2. I, I have this sanctified speculation that once David received the promise, this promise, and it's repeated again in Second Chronicles 17 by, by the writer of the Chronicles, I, I have this sanctified speculation that all the messianic psalms that we have, that David wrote, was after this. I think he became a student of the Messiah. I think he was searching the scriptures. I think that's why in the, in the book of Hebrews, how many times does the writer of Hebrews quote Psalm 110? Jesus is a a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Who wrote that? David did. Because I think David was trying to put two and two together. My Messiah is going to be a king. I mean, that says that there in 2 Samuel 7, he's going to have a king forever, a kingdom forever, and he's going to be on my throne forever. Uh, But I need a priest. I need a sacrifice. So how is my king going to be a priest? And uh, he's not going to come from the tribe of Levi because he comes from the tribe of Judah. He's going to come from what? the order according to Melchizedek, and we'll talk about that as soon as we get done this. But David, I believe, became a student of the Messiah and started writing psalms about it, and I think Psalm 2 is one of those. And By the way, you don't have a superscription there. How do we know what Psalm 2 is? Because I think it's Peter in Acts 4 tells us that David wrote this. Verse 8 in particular, This, this is where the inheritance aspect comes in. God says, ask of me, and he's talking to his son, up a couple of verses above, ask of me and I will make the nations your what? Inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. So, the, the, the evil men scheme, right? Worthless men gather around. What are they trying to do? They're against the Lord and against his anointed. The Lord sits and scoffs, but he just looks at his son and says what? Hey, this is yours. This is yours. Again, tie this back into Hebrews. Christ is the heir. God has appointed him the heir of all things. Now, Isaiah 9. Let me give you a couple more chapters to tie it all, all this together. And this is the verse we normally give at Christmas time. But a number of years after David, we read in Isaiah 9, verse 6. A child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And here it is. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And he did. This is Isaiah. Jesus as the heir, God giving him, promising him, appointing him the heir of all things, finds its fulfillment in here. the 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 inheritance has to do with the Davidic inheritance. You got that? Now, one more text: Daniel seven. We have to go to Daniel seven. Daniel 7, remember Daniel 1 through 6 is basically the histories, and and from 7 to 12 are all the visions. In Daniel 7, verse 9, just drop down to verse 9. Look what Daniel says. As I kept watching, so he's visions going on, and this is obviously of the future, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days... We could say that represents the father. Took his seat. His clothing was white like snow and the hair of his head like whitest wool. His throne was flaming fire. Its wheels were blazing fire. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from his presence. Thousands upon thousands served him. Ten thousand times. Ten thousand stood before him. The court was convened. And the books were opened. And Daniel says, I watched then because of the sound of the arrogant words the horn was speaking. That was referred to earlier. As I continued watching, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was removed, but an extension of life was granted to them for a certain period of time. I continued watching in the night visions, and suddenly, there it is, one like a son of man, the son now, was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. And here comes the inheritance. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed." I mean, you go from 2 Samuel 7, I mean, you can all the way go back to Genesis 3.15, but as you trace the, 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 the gospel story, the storyline uh, of the good news throughout the Old Testament, the story of all the promises of the Messiah... And again, those I just gave you, and there's more obviously, but 2 Samuel 7, to Psalm 2, Isaiah 9, and here Daniel 7, it all pulls together to this one statement that we just read in Hebrews where he says that God has appointed him the heir of all things. The heir of who? The heir of David. He is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies, but specifically he is the... The fulfillment of the prophecies about David. Now, if you're a Jewish Christian in the first century, is that important to know? Is that important to know if you're going to have your faith strengthened? To have have hope given so that you can press on? I mean, if Jesus Jesus isn't the fulfillment of all this and he's not the heir of all this, uh, then maybe you need to go back to Judaism. But if he is the fulfillment of everything you've been longing for and all that you've been hoping for, you need to press on. By the way, we, we can, if you go back to Hebrews now, we uh, just listen to this. You can swing this image of Christ's heirship from the Old Testament prophecies right into the New Testament. Go back to Hebrews 1, 3 for a moment. Uh, and you, you can see it what it means right there in verse 3. Long ago, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. Verse 2, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. God has appointed him heir of all things made the universe through him. The Son is the radiance of God, glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful words. After making purification for sins, what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. Basically, if you want to look at a bird's eye view of verses two and three, you've got God appointed him heir of all things, and he is sitting down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. They match. Some of you know what a chiasm is. The verses are in a chiasm. It's a literary device so that you understand what the main point is. And the main point is is that he is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords because he's the heir, and he's now sitting at the right hand of the Majesty on God on high. You see that? He's king. That, in a word, if you want to understand what heirship means, he, what it means that he was appointed heir, he, he's appointed king. Let's, let's make it simple. Now, it says he is appointed over everything, and that's, that's a lot of things, but the point is he is king. And this, by the way, was anticipated even before Jesus' exaltation. Remember, Jesus said, just listen to this. In John 13, 3, knowing that the Father had, Jesus, rather, this is John, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands. That sounds like He understood that He was going to be the heir. John 16, 15, all things that the Father has are Mine, Jesus says. Matthew 28, 18, Jesus declared that all authority has been given to Me in Heaven and on Earth. You get the point. The point for these jewish christians the point for us and make sure you get it that the entire universe belongs to the son and it belongs to the son by what by divine appointment by divine appointment he is the lord of all remember paul uh, peter says that in his sermon in acts 10 jesus is the lord of all revelation 19:16 he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, and what does it say? King of king, kings and Lord of lords. Go to Revelation 5. We read this earlier. Thought I'd get a little bit further this morning, but that's all right. You need to see this. And we'll wrap it up with this. Revelation 5, go back to where we read earlier. Verse 1, John here says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back sealed up with seven seals. Any of you know what that means? What, What is he talking about here? Well, it would help to have some background. So the background to this is that in Roman law, it is required that a will a will, uh, had to be sealed up seven times to protect it from tampering. And as it was rolled up, every turn was sealed, and each of the seven seals could not be broken until after the person whose will it was had died. that That was Roman law. John understood that, obviously, John recognized the significance of the scroll rolled up, and what did he do? He began to weep, right? He weeped greatly, in fact, because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders came to John and said, what? Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Get that? Lion of Judah, root of David. This is the Davidic promises here. He has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. Now, the question is, how did he do it? God appointed him as heir, but what did he do to earn it, so to speak? Go down to verse 9. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll to open its seals. Why? Here it is. Because you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they will reign on the earth. Isn't that good? There it is. He's worthy. He's worthy. And then you come into chapter 6. The, the lamb starts unrolling the seven seals as you know. And not just the seals, the trumpet blows. And and John records that the earth belongs to Christ. He is the heir of all things. Is, is, Is everybody with me? Now, the story doesn't end there, by the way. And just for the sake of time, just listen to this. Not only is Jesus the heir of all things, but if you belong to Christ and you are in Christ, guess what? You too are the heir of all things. you understand that? Galatians 3.29, Paul says, If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring's heirs according to the promise. Hebrews 6.17, you can turn there. The writer of Hebrews says the same thing. We're heirs of the promise. Over in chapter 11, verse 7, we are heirs of the righteousness which is according to faith. In Romans 4.13, we are heirs of the world. In Romans 8:17, Paul says, there we're heirs, also heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him." And then James also gets in on it. He says, "We are heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him. God appointed Christ as the heir of all things, but all those who are in Christ, all those who Christ died for, who purchased, back to Revelation 5. Those people for God by his blood, those from every tribe, language, people, and nation who become a kingdom, who become priests, we will reign as well on the earth. That's what Revelation five says. When does this happen? Well back to our text. Hebrews one two in the last days. (laughs) In the last days. We will be heirs with Christ because God has appointed Christ as the heir of all things. As I said, I, 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 I sometimes read the New Living Translation just to get an idea of, of, of the gist of, of what that means. So let me just finish by reading one Hebrews 1-2 again in the New Living Translation so you you make sure you get this. And now in these final days, He has spoken. God has spoken to us through His Son. God promised everything to the Son as an inheritance. And through the Son, He created the universe. Again, that's that helps us understand who He is and what He's done. That's that's God coming down and speaking our language, and we get it. And the point of getting it is that we can just Praise God for it, and glory in Christ because of it. So we'll leave it there. Like I said, I thought we'd get a little bit further than just one, but hopefully the rest won't be as long as we move forward. So come back next week, and we'll work our way through the rest of them. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this morning that we can just meditate on your word, that we can plumb the depths of it, understand it, how the Old Testament connects with the New Testament, but more importantly, how... Jesus is the fulfillment of the Davidic promises. And because he is, you have appointed him the heir of all things. Right now, as we speak, he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's sitting at the right hand of your majesty. And because we are in him, we will reign with him as well. What a a glorious thought. Lord, give us... uh, Give us hearts that that would jump because of that. That would give us a zeal. uh, Pull us out of our slumber because of these great truths. May we praise you. Amen.